0: First reading is taken from Mark 7, verses 1 to 13, that's on page 44 of the New Testament section of the Church Bibles. Now when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honours me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandments of God and hold to human tradition. Then he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honour your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must surely die. But you say... That if anyone tells a father or mother, whatever support you might have had from me is Corban, then it is, uh, that is, an offering to God. Then you no longer permit doing anything for a father or mother. Thus making void the word of God through your tradition that you have handed on. And you do many things like this. And now we continue with Mark 7, verse 14. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, then do you also fail to understand? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile? Since it enters, not the heart, but the stomach, and goes out into the sewer. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, it is what comes out of a person that defiles. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person.
1: Dermot, can you remember what you said to me when we were praying just before the service? Our own internal legalists die hard. Really struck me. Just hold that phrase, our own internal legalists die hard. Meanwhile, I've recently started reading Bill Bryson's latest book, It's called the body a guide for occupants and I highly recommend it and in his chapter on skin he talks about the importance of washing your hands and I thought some short quotes from the book might be an interesting place to start our engagement this morning with Jesus argument with the Pharisees on the significance or not of washing your hands Bill Bryson writes to make one's hands safely clean after a medical examination requires a thorough washing with soap and water for at least a full minute a standard that is, in practical terms, all but unattainable for anyone dealing with lots of patients. It's a big part of the reason why every year some 2 million Americans pick up a serious infection in hospital and 90,000 of them die of it. The greatest difficulty is getting clinicians to do the one thing that consistently halts the spread of infections washing their hands. Then a little bit later in the book, he tells the story of an unfortunate woman known as Typhoid Mary, who was a symptomless carrier of typhoid working as a cook in a number of wealthy houses in New York City in the early 20th century. Apparently, she was responsible for at least 53 cases of typhoid, three confirmed deaths, and possibly many more. And the particular tragedy of it is that she could have spared her unfortunate victims if she had just washed her hands before handling food. Bill Bryson also tells the story of the discovery of how to eliminate the horrifically fatal disease known as childbed fever, which swept through Europe in waves from the 17th to the 20th centuries, often killing 90% of the young mums it infected. He says, In 1847, a medical instructor in Vienna realised that if doctors washed their hands before conducting intimate examinations, the disease all but vanished. Quote, God knows the number of women whom I have consigned prematurely to the grave, the medical instructor wrote despairingly when he realized it was all a matter of hygiene. Unfortunately, no one listened to him, and childbed fever continued to be a problem into the 1930s, uh, where it was responsible still for four out of every ten maternal hospital deaths in Europe and America and even today the main defense against MRSA infections in hospitals which results in an estimated 700,000 deaths every year worldwide is an insistence on careful hand hygiene. All of which leads me to conclude that I think the Pharisees may have had a point. After all here at Bloomsbury we insist that those who volunteer in our church kitchen and if you don't yet volunteer in the church kitchen maybe you should come and talk to me If you do, one of the first things we'll do is put you through some food and safety and hygiene training, and you guessed it, a key part of that is learning to wash your hands regularly. And if I were to say that I was going to serve communion later, but that I hadn't bothered washing my hands after I went to the toilet before the service, I bet at least some of you would discover some hitherto unconfessed inner sin that required you to abstain from partaking in the bread and wine this week. Don't worry, by the way, I certainly did wash my hands. But on the face of it, the Pharisees' insistence on washing anything they bought from the market before they ate it, and on washing their cups and pots and bronze kettles, as well as their hands, seems a perfectly sensible thing to do. And of course it's the same with many of the other food and cleanliness regulations that existed within ancient Jewish culture, and indeed other ancient Near Eastern cultures. They may not have had an understanding of bacteria, but people had learned by trial and error that, for example, undercooked shellfish had a higher than average chance of making you ill, and also that not washing things spread disease. These were not stupid people. So why did Jesus allow his disciples to eat with defiled hands? Why did Jesus choose to pick a fight on the issue of whether it's a good idea to wash your hands before eating dinner. I wish I'd read this when I was about eight. It would have been a trump card against my mother. What on earth are we to make of this in the light of modern advice on food hygiene? In order to understand what's going on here, with the disciples and the hand washing, or the lack of it, I think... And bear with me here, we can draw a helpful parallel with the methodology of Citizens UK. Let me explain. Many of you will know that Bloomsbury is a member of London Citizens. This is the community organising network that draws together churches and mosques and synagogues and schools and universities and community groups to work together for greater justice in our city. Some of you are coming to the Copper Box in the Olympic Park on the 21st of April to join with uh, the Bloomsbury team, to join 6,000 others from citizens institutions across London to put pressure on the candidates for the London mayoral election on issues such as climate change, welcoming refugees, housing and homelessness, and so on. And by the way, if you want to come and you haven't got your name down yet for a ticket, speak to me or to Helen after the service. However, this kind of big show of strength, getting thousands of people together to demonstrate our collective power, is the kind of thing we do, you know, once every few years. Most of the time, the work of London citizens to bring about changes in culture and society is done on a much smaller scale, using carefully thought through and targeted symbolic actions small-scale things designed to provoke a response an example of this that we will all have heard of is uh, that of rosa parks and martin luther king both trained in exactly the kind of community organizing strategy that we use here in london rosa parks did not wake up one morning and just decide to sit in the wrong seat on a bus It was a carefully thought-through tactic to generate a response from the authorities and to advance the civil rights struggle. Sometimes you need the big show of strength, and you need to get 6,000 people to the copper box to change the mayor's policy for the next five years. Sometimes you just need to sit in a different seat. And Jesus allowing his disciples to ignore the ritual about hand-washing was exactly this. It was a carefully targeted and highly symbolic action designed to provoke a specific response from the powerful Pharisees. It was a small-scale action of rebellion. The thing is, that whilst the first century rituals about hand-washing may have originated in perfectly sensible observations about disease control, and whilst they certainly make good sense to us from a contemporary hygiene perspective, in the hands of the legalistic Pharisees, they had become a tool to denote and control who was acceptable to God and who wasn't. And this is because the language of clean and unclean had become transplanted from the physical world to the spiritual world. So, Whilst it may be perfectly acceptable to point out to somebody that their hands are dirty and that they really ought to wash them before eating dinner, telling them that they are unclean in their soul and are therefore not welcome to the banquet of God's kingdom is something else altogether. In the thought world of the Pharisees, the language of uncleanness, physical uncleanness, had been taken to another level. And so they talked... Not just of the the cleanliness of a person's hands, but of the purity of a person's soul. And the thing is, I get it, and I'm sure you do too. It's a natural extension of the use of language, isn't it? uh, For us to say, for example, that we feel dirty when what we mean is that we're experiencing shame. Maybe as a result of our own sinful actions or because of wrong things that have been done to us. And it's a genuine analogy, isn't it, to say that. More positively, there is something spiritually uplifting about washing, about feeling clean, about spending time in water. Many of you will know that I go swimming quite a lot, three miles last week. Thank you very much. And the sensation of being immersed in water and of taking exercise whilst doing so is something that I find brings me closer to God. So this pattern of using a metaphor drawn from our physical existence to speak of something we experience spiritually is something we can all relate to, both positively and negatively. But where it started to go wrong for the Pharisees was that they fused the physical metaphor with the spiritual reality. They confused physical uncleanness with spiritual defilements. So rather than regarding washing before eating as a useful and sensible social function passed down through tribal memory and learned behavior, it became in their minds a kind of status symbol of spiritual suitability, an outward show of inner cleanliness. What's the phrase again, Dermot? Our own internal legalist dies hard. As fundamentalist religious leaders have discovered time and again down the years, often to the great delight of tabloid editors, if the marker of your spirituality is an outward show of ritual purity, the danger is that it just gets easier and easier to fake it keeping up the show on the outside whilst allowing the spiritual core to degenerate into hypocrisy and duplicity. More than one religious leader has fallen from grace whilst keeping up all the appearances. So, Jesus allowed his disciples to rattle the Pharisees' cage a bit by skipping their washing before a meal, and it certainly worked. If he was aiming for a response, he got one. In citizens' terms, this was a successful action. But the way the Pharisees responded to Jesus is interesting. Because they didn't go, Ew, their hands are dirty, that's gross, go and wash them. Rather, they said, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And here we get a key insight into what's going on in the Pharisees' minds. For them, this isn't about cleanliness or even about cleanliness being next to godliness. Rather, this is about the tradition of the elders. There were two kinds of law, or Torah, at the time of Jesus. There was the written law, the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and so on. And then there was the oral law, the traditions of the elders. Now... I did check this out, the written law, the Hebrew Bible, what we now call the Old Testament in the Christian tradition, doesn't say very much about the importance of ritual washing. If you go to Leviticus 15, you'll find it suggests that if someone has an unusually colored discharge, they should wash themselves and their clothes. I'm with that, and that's it. But the traditions of the elders are absolutely full of it, listing all kinds of regulations which take the physical action of washing and make it a spiritual marker of purity. So, what Jesus allowed his disciples to do, which so scandalised the Pharisees, was to act in a way that challenged the authority of the oral law. And the clever thing here is that the disciples weren't even breaking the written law at all. Only the traditions of the elders that sustains the Pharisees in their never-ending quest to erect liturgical markers around the faith barrier of their identity. And I find myself wondering what symbolic actions we, who are the disciples of Jesus in our time, might be called to that could similarly challenge the hypocrisy of those with a vested interest in keeping some in and some out. I found an interesting observation in one of the commentaries I read as I was preparing this sermon. It says, next quote, if a society feels under threat, it will reinforce its purity codes as a way of insisting to itself that it really is what it should be. I think if you want an explanation for Trump's America it's there. If you want an explanation, frankly, for what Boris is doing at the moment in the UK, I think it's there. And I wonder what our collective societal purity codes are. What are the traditions of the elders that are handed down to us that it gets dangerous to challenge? Language? Ethnicity? Nationalism, militarism, neoliberalism? Dare we go up against neoliberalism? An extreme example of something far more insidious. Um, did you see the story of the happy Brexit day notices pinned up on every floor of a tower block in Norwich? The signs say, We finally have our great country back. We do not tolerate people speaking other languages than English in these flats. Thankfully, this hateful act was swiftly followed with people putting up love hearts with messages of solidarity, love, and welcome. But I think it is indicative of a mindset that is out there, of hostility to difference, ethnic, language, cultural. And, of course, the use of language as a boundary marker of identity has a long history. If you, uh, well, okay, if you know your computer programming code, Andrea, I'm looking at you, you will have heard of a shibboleth. This is a little token that websites use to allow you to enter the website. The word shibboleth comes from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament, and it's a word that was used because um, only Jews could pronounce it properly and people who were non-Jewish couldn't. And so when they were trying to work out who was really Jewish and who wasn't, they did a language test and made people pronounce shibboleth, and if you got it right, you were in, and if you didn't, you weren't. This idea of language as a boundary marker, where we take something and as positive and natural as the words we learn from our parents and use them to create cultures of fear and suspicion, It's really insidious and destructive, and it keeps happening. You've only got to read about the English suppression of the Welsh language for a clear example of this in action in the history of the United Kingdom. And one of the reasons I'm so excited that Bloomsbury is playing its part in the welcoming of two Syrian refugee sisters to the West End is that our involvement in welcoming two non-English-speaking Syrian sisters to our neighbourhood absolutely goes head-to-head with the narratives of exclusion and othering that we meet in the culture around us. Community sponsorship of refugees is a creative way of challenging the cultural boundaries that keep people apart, isolated and suppressed. Um, Jean, I'm going to just interrupt the sermon and ask you to pop up for a moment, because I I decided I'd save us talking about the Syrian sisters to this point in the sermon. Uh, I was going to take a break for a moment from the script. Jean, tell us about how it's going with the Syrian sisters.
2: It's going really well. Um, the sisters are now registered at the job centre. Uh, it's going to take a while for them to get any funds through the benefit system. Um, they're registered for English lessons, which are starting after half term. Um, so the week after this one, um, lots of people from, particularly the Quakers, are involved. But there is a request: if there are other people, especially women, because these are Muslim women and therefore need female accompaniers, uh, willing to help. Goodness knows what it'll be or when it will be, but have a word with me afterwards because. Bloomsbury at the moment is actually not doing very much compared with the other two churches. And it would be really nice if we could pull our weight a little bit more. It's not that easy to do because we all live so far away. But um, especially if there are women who might have, it needn't be a regular slot, but just could be called on if there was a need at some point. I'll talk more individually.
1: Great. Thanks, Jane. Thank you. So... An opportunity there for, you know, just, you know, what what if all you're doing is taking a sister to the doctor so that she can have a consultation and know she's got someone with her? Wouldn't that be exactly the kind of symbolic action that we're talking about here? Just going head-to-head with narratives of exclusion. And I kind of think almost any word that ends in ism can be used to exclude in this way. And it's not that I'm, it's not that I'm against, well, I kind of am. It's not that I'm not proud to be English because I really like the culture I was brought up in. I I like, I mean, I don't like listening to myself on the recording, but you know, I like the way I speak. I, I I like the town I grew up in. There's lots of really positive things about my culture. When that becomes something that is normalized and used to exclude others, that's where it becomes a problem. So it's when when pride in one's own sense of identity becomes an ism that excludes others that I think we have the big problem. And I I think we're going to see a rise in purity markers such as language uh, uh, or the controlling of behavior, issues around whether it's appropriate to wear head coverings or not, or face coverings or not. Those sorts of things are going to be increasing the way society is going. And I do just ponder what symbolic actions we can take that build bridges rather than walls. All this, it seems to me, is exactly the kind of thing that Jesus' disciples ought to be subverting. And I'm sure you've also been following the coronavirus headlines, reminding us, of course, at great and tragic cost, that there is an entirely appropriate reason to be concerned about washing one's hands regularly, or indeed, in covering one's face in public. But the incidences of racist abuse perpetrated against Chinese and other Asian people in London over the last couple of weeks, is a further example about how easily a proper concern about cleanliness can spill over into abusive acts of spiritual or ideological purity. The philosophical belief that underlies all of this is the teaching of Plato, the Greek philosopher who lived about 400 years before Jesus. Plato said that the world was divided into two realms, the spiritual realm and the physical realm. And he believed that the physical realm, the one that we all live in, is just a kind of poor shadow of the true perfection that can be found in the spiritual world beyond this one. This philosophy came to be known as Platonic dualism, and it spread throughout the ancient world, kind of riding the coattails of the expansion of the Greek empire under Alexander the Great. And its influence can be seen in the Pharisees' teaching that the physical world of ritual washing and other observances was a reflection of the spiritual state of a person's soul. So, Jesus' challenge to the Pharisees' ideology of exclusion based on their fusion of physical and spiritual cleanliness was actually also a challenge against the underlying philosophical mindset that gave power to their teaching. So, in this simple and seemingly trivial act of allowing his disciples to not wash their hands, Jesus was taking on not just the Pharisees, but the entire edifice of Greek philosophy. If you've been following our series through as we've been preaching through Mark's gospel this year, up until this point, Jesus has been casting unclean spirits out of people. But the symbolic action of resisting the ritual of hand-washing Here he makes clear his wider agenda of casting spirits of uncleanness out of the world. The new world, the new kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming and which he invites his disciples to live into being is not going to be somewhere where people feel shame for who they are. Nor is it to be a place where people's souls are rendered unclean or dirty either because of things they have done or of things which have been done to them. The new world of the kingdom of heaven is not a world of ideological quarantines, spiritual decontamination chainers, or ritualized holding cells. It's not a world where the whispered traditions of the elders get to codify laws that exclude or isolate the vulnerable or the different. It is rather a place of radical forgiveness and all-embracing love, where purity comes as a gift from God, available to all without distinction, And so Jesus bites back at the Pharisees with his slightly strange tirade about Corban law. That's Corban, not Corbin. Because the Pharisees, for all of their outward displays of purity, were using their ritual observance as an excuse to escape from their moral and financial obligations. And Jesus' point was that purity of motive always trumps purity of action. It's not not that what we do doesn't matter. Our actions are very important. But right action stems from right motive. And the Pharisees have been getting this the wrong way around. If the focus is on outward purity, the heart can rot away, leaving a hollow shell. But if the heart is right before God, the actions that come from it will be a blessing and not a curse. And so in a minute, we're going to come to the communion table and share bread and wine that are for us the symbol and sign of the new kingdom that Jesus was proclaiming. And at the communion table, my invitation is for us to, at least in some small way today, cast out the spirit of uncleanness, the little inner legalist that lives within each of us. And as we come to the table, I just want us to notice a few things. First of all, at this table, all are welcome. Every single one of you. In our tradition, we do not, to use the old phrase, fence the table. Rather, we invite everyone to share in bread and wine. Secondly, although I promise I have, I really don't care if you've washed your hands partly it's because the bread's already cut and we use nice little hygienic cups so the risk of passing on your cold is quite low but the deeper point is that there is no ritual that we need to observe in order to be spiritually clean before God and receive the gifts of grace thirdly we are each of us me and you forgiven whatever we've done or whatever has been done to us, whatever shame we carry, however dirty we feel on the inside, we are forgiven and welcomed by God. And finally, we are called to a new basis for our discipleship, where the focus is not on doing the right things for their own sake, but rather on responding faithfully to the renewal of our hearts by the love of God.
3: So in the early hours of this morning I was trying to find words for today's prayers but of course it was the middle of a raging storm and the rain was very loud and the wind was very strong, the windows on the flat were rattling. I couldn't really think very clearly, Um, I just wanted to go back to bed. (laughs) But you know even sometimes when prayer is difficult or it seems rather pointless like throwing a coin in a wishing well. I've come to realise that it is one of our most precious resources. So bearing that in mind, let's pray together. Loving God, as the winds blow and the rain falls, sometimes the storms seem never to end. It can feel discouraging. And we know that the weather is something beyond our control. We pray for all those caught in the storm. We pray for people in flimsy tents and cardboard boxes in shop doorways in the West End of London. We pray for people across Britain and across the world who face floods or the impact of damaging winds. We give you thanks for all the people who've stepped in to help, the emergency services, the army, and we ask for guidance in finding the best response to care for our environment. We don't like to see people being left out in the cold, frightened, isolated or excluded. And we think of those who are finding it really difficult to cope at the moment. For some people, storms on Twitter or social media or angry conflict can feel overwhelming. And there are people for whom Valentine's Day has reinforced a sense of loneliness and failure or of unfulfilled dreams and wishes. We know that when people lose close relationships, it can lead to a sense of despair and it's really hard to ask for help. In those situations, Lord, we pray for your grace. Give us fresh glimpses of your love. Show us how we can support one another. Remind us to hold one another in prayer. In many parts of the world, extremely urgent and anxious prayers are being offered in relation to the coronavirus. We share the concerns of those praying in temples, in shrines, in quarantine centers, in hospital wards, in airports, and on cruise liners. We give thanks for the international team from the World Health Organization, which has traveled to China to try to coordinate the international response to the outbreak. This is a global health emergency, it requires a global response. We pray that there'll be a concerted effort to break down the barriers of politics, ideology or race as people come together in common cause to face a serious threat to our humanity. We pray for the courage to face every growing sphere and every growing storm. And we thank you for the bravery shown by the doctors and the nurses and the relatives of the carers of the people affected by the virus. Loving God, whatever we face, whatever frightens us, whatever disturbs us, remind us of the miracle that you're with us eternally, offering fresh opportunities, renewal and hope. Amen.